All right, we are back. Uh, no doubt many of you watched the inauguration two days ago. As part of that event, someone had an unenviable task to write a poem grand enough for a presidential inauguration, but accessible enough for the wide swath of Americans tuning in while being artful enough to keep critics at bay. And joining us now to talk about the juxtaposition of poetry and special events is our resident expert, Dr. Andy Jones. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Andy. Thank you, Dr. Doug, for having me back on your radio show. And let's start by plugging the fact that every week on KDVS at 5 o'clock, Wednesdays, you do a show titled... Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. Yes. Now, we know a th- thing or two about technology on this show, but when it comes to poetry, we figured we'd, we'd best go to someone who knows something. <laughs> I always appreciate it when you defer to me on literary topics, Doug. <laughs> well, I wanted to specifically talk about the fact that we just had an inauguration, and for the, apparently the fourth time in the history of presidential inaugurations, a poet was invited. And I, I learned about this reading the Newsweek article by Samantha Hennig titled, Give us a sonnet, doggone it, which I liked. That's pretty clever. <laughs> but I'm glad that that line was not used on Tuesday. <laughs> that makes two of us. But let's talk about this little event. I'm sure you saw Elizabeth Alexander, Yale professor, uh, taking attempt number four. I did, and longtime listeners to my radio show would uh, remember that I've had Elizabeth Alexander on Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. She was one of the uh, first faculty members who I decided that I wanted to just phone and get on the show when I started uh, the radio show about eight years ago. She was very uh, patient. We talked a while about her poetry advocacy work in Massachusetts. Now she's at Yale, and I'm sure that both Yale and uh, Professor Alexander were thrilled that she was chosen to uh, present an inaugural poem for uh, Barack Obama's uh, special date. It's a challenging task to write poems on command, especially when you know that uh, one of the preeminent poets of today, Maya Angelou, is uh, read before from that same spot, as has uh, Robert Frost at uh, John F. Kennedy's inaugural in 1961. Yeah, Robert Frost is kind of legendary for what happened, but there's this kind of interesting story that I guess he was out there, it was freezing cold, the wind was blowing around, and he was not able to actually read the uh, the poem in front of him, so he instead recited one from memory. Isn't that impressive? Yes. When you consider that the head of our Supreme Court was not able even to memorize (laughs) the 15 or 20 words of the uh, inaugural oath of office for the president that uh, Frost had that entire poem in his head, I guess should not be surprising, despite his age, because that's what poets do. Yes, and it's been regarded as probably the best inaugural poem ever, because they say, well, perhaps because it wasn't the one he intended. He just cited one that was from memory that was quite excellent. And not only that, but uh, some of the poetry choices since then, have people have said that they were either of mixed quality or unremarkable, there, there have been spirited discussions about the, the quality. Uh, since Frost, no one has said, well, uh, she or he hit it out of the park. <laughs> and I think that would be true for uh, Elizabeth Alexander and her poem, Praise Song for the Day, a poem for Barack Obama's presidential inauguration. Well, what would you grade it, Dr. Andy, a B plus? Oh, I'd give it a B plus. I mean, of course, I was pulling for Elizabeth Alexander. Yeah. And it has some strong lines. She... She made the mistake, I think, of 
trying to write a poem that would appeal to such a broad swath of the uh, American non-reading public that uh, she uses uh, language that would be pretty comfortable coming out of the mouth of a fourth or fifth grader, largely. (laughs) And when you limit yourself that way, uh, there are fewer things that you can do. Nevertheless, I thought there were some uh, some interesting images. I appreciated the way that it um, invoked the spirit of Walt Whitman, if not the kind of jaunty, swingy rhythm of uh, Whitman's longer lines. And it also addresses in a few places some of the challenges that uh, the country is facing right now. And that was certainly a, a theme of the inaugural uh, address by Obama. After we heard the second or third paragraph, my wife and I said to each other, this is pretty much a bummer so far. <laughs> but, but then, of course, Obama uh, turned it around. But when uh, Elizabeth Alexander uh, has lines, for instance, uh, about one of the topics that had uh, uh, come up often, and that is, what sacrifices have we made and do we need to make yet? She said, say it plain, that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick the glittering edifices they would then keep clean and work inside of. Now, um, not everyone would hear uh, the the kind of racial um, undertones to some of those uh, historical truths. Yeah. But as has often been discussed, uh, Barack Obama, as an African-American, is now uh, living in a building that was uh, built at least in part by slaves. Hmm. So um, she's speaking there to this grand cycle of American and African-American history in the ways that she talks about the, the workers who have not only uh, picked cotton, and that's a, a stereotypical uh, image for African-American laborers of, say, the 19th century, but also who have built all the great buildings on the mall, including the Capitol and the White House. Well, it must be very difficult to, to sit down and try and pen a poem for a special occasion. I, I And I guess that that's, uh, I guess the British are, have been more of a tradition of that. I was, the same article by Samantha Hennig mentioned something I didn't know. Apparently, Lord Alfred Tennyson's The Charge of the Light Brigade was written for a special occasion and yet is a, one of those poems that lives through the ages. It, it does. And uh, the, the Poet Laureate program not even a program, the tradition of the Poet Laureate uh, in Britain. And Poet Laureates do include, say, Ben Jonson and Tennyson and Wordsworth and, uh, in the 20th century, uh, Ted Hughes, for instance, that uh, these are poets who were charged quite often by the royalty to uh, write poems that commemorated specific occasions. Tennyson had the position for a great number of uh, years in fact, I think he's the only uh, poet in British history who has been given a, a lordship because of the quality of his verse and the success of his verse. Really? That's how he earned, that's how he became Lord Alfred? Absolutely. I'll be darned. Now, of course, there were far fewer uh, opportunities for entertainment in the 19th century. And poetry sold very well uh, at different times uh, in the 19th century in Britain. But uh, so, you know, Tennyson would be a, uh, a rock star uh, equivalent for today's youth. But often, uh, for instance, Queen Victoria would ask Tennyson to write a poem to commemorate a, uh, a specific occasion. 
and uh, also poet laureates had uh, the position, it was a lifetime appointment, very much like a Supreme Court justice here. Whereas in the United States, uh, it's usually, I believe, a two-year term, and it's run through the Library of Congress. And the main duty is not to write commemorative poems, but for the poet laureate to help advise the Librarian of Congress on uh, what sort of poems and poets should be recognized and celebrated as well as protected in the Library of Congress itself. Well, very good, sir. Uh, we, uh, we look forward to talking more here in 2009. Absolutely. And uh, I always um, enjoy your show. I've been keeping my eyes open for uh, appropriate, appropriately <laughs> uh, weighty, as well as uh, humorous <laughs> guests. And, uh, and we'll have to talk offline about some of the recent discoveries that I've made. Let's let's do that and put a and, and put a plug in for your uh, your 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 trivia night while we're at it. Well, that's not usually something I talk about on the air, uh, Doug. But I'll I'll mention it that uh, on Monday evenings at Bistro Thirty Three, I host the uh, Bistro Thirty Three Pub Quiz. <clears throat> Starts at nine o'clock, and uh, people who find themselves to be uh, masters of uh, trivia, such as yourself, <laughs> are certainly uh, welcome to show up and form a team and uh, compete for the, the fun prizes. It's well, a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it. It, it definitely is. Your, your teams have done well every single time you've participated in the Bistro 33 Pub. Well, we get to take the crown, so we're coming back and trying again. Excellent. All right, Dr. Andy Jones, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Doug, and happy Inauguration Week to you. All right, to be continued. Bye-bye. Well, on this part of the program, we sometimes talk about obituaries, and, and there are numerous ones we need to address, but I think for today's show, let's just say our obituary for the program today is the Bush-Cheney administration. On this program, we try and use obituaries to celebrate the passing of important people or people we should discuss. But uh, in this case, we're reminded of Mark Twain's quote that he never killed anybody, but he had read many obituaries with satisfaction. And let's close, let's close our show today with something from The Oddball File. I think I'm just going to have to read this one pretty much verbatim. From the AP, a couple weeks ago, goes as follows. Dateline, London. Britain's Royal Society of Chemistry says it has perfected the recipe for Oliver Twist's most famous meal, workhouse gruel. Yes, members of the society consulted historical sources and Charles Dickens' beloved novel to recreate the porridge, which is made of water, oats, milk, and an onion. And around Christmas, they, we don't have a follow-up on this, but apparently around Christmas, they plan to ladle out bowls brimming with the gruel, which they describe as, quote, barely palatable, unquote, in central London. The scientists are warning that requests for more... In homage to the famous line, Please, sir, I want some more, just won't be tolerated. The Royal Society says it undertook the task of recreating the Dickensian gruel t to highlight its work on food. Boy, and if, if we're not mistaken, we see the hints of an ignoble prize in this research. And uh, speaking of dubious awards, it appears that the Razzies this year are going to be dominated by Mike Myers, the love guru. 
But we have no time to discuss that today, so we'll have to defer that as well. Our thanks to Will Durst, our thanks to Dr. Andy Jones, and uh, on next week's show, we hope to speak to Tom Bleese about his book, Prescription for the Planet, as well as getting a first-hand report of what transpired on Inauguration Day from our one of our political correspondents, Lisa Hussein Pease. <laughs> this program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.